Holy Spirit, you must be teeming with excitement. As you get to be revealed in the story. And as you get the desire of your heart. We welcome you with special invitation to reveal, to give wisdom, revelation, and understanding of the one you love, Jesus. We invite you and give you special invitation to fill us and shower us with your everlasting love. We step with you tonight into your story. We love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Amen. The last evening of the story, the coda, The coda is the moment in the musical piece where the song is, re- is returned to the original cadence and the home key. We get to look together into how that is going to happen. We finished... Last night, with our eyes fixed on the greatest expression of love that the world has ever seen or will ever see, invite you to close your eyes with me and let the eyes of your heart be opened. Let your eyes fall upon this one man. Bleeding. Weak. Cold. Lifeless. Disfigured beyond recognition. Head hung low. The pierced one. This is love. They would take him down off of that tree.
and hold God, limp and lifeless, in their arms. Darkness covering the earth. Jesus' family, those who trusted him, his deepest companions, his closest friends, left without any trace of hope. Hour by hour by hour, can you imagine the meditation of their minds? It's Saturday. All through that late afternoon Friday, through the night, restless, tossing, turning, waking up, cold sweats, images filling their minds and imaginations, Everything that they had believed in, giving their lives to, was gone. It's Saturday, and Jesus is dead. I don't want to skip over this part too quickly because there's moments in our lives when we experience such pain and such loss that it feels like the world just stops. I remember some of the most painful moments of anxiety in my life. And it was like I couldn't push the seconds forward on my watch. You know, you just feel like it's all ended. The world is caving in. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, the teacher says. Everything is meaningless. This deep, hopeless place came over their hearts. The, the fond memories of their imagination. The grieving of losing the one that they loved. We read over this so quickly. Saturday is silent. I like to try to imagine what has taken hold of them in that place. How dark is dark. How desperate is desperate. How great of a loss beyond what we can even fathom or imagine. Beyond comprehension. This scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 and 19. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Hour 
by hour by hour, everything that they had believed in was futile and meaningless. Their human existence was just the same as everyone else's. From dust we come, to dust we will return. Man, what an empty feeling. Friday is the sixth day of the Jewish week. And uh, those last words that this great man, who I guess was just a man, cried out, It is finished. Seventh day of the Jewish week is their Sabbath. And they would rest. Taken to a rich man's tomb, a rumor began to spread that Jesus had said to his followers that on the third day he would rise. And so, they assign guards... And they say, I want you to stand guard at his tomb and seal it so that they don't come and steal the body. And then say that there's a rumor that he is raised from the dead. Do whatever you can for these three days to stand guard and seal. What's so amazing is that the sixth day, it was finished. And on the seventh day, when everyone thought he was completely dead, he was on Sabbath rest. And early that morning, I wonder what creation was doing. The Holy Spirit began to stir in the heavens. The angels started to anticipate the plan from the beginning of time. And I like to imagine the seas beginning to resound, the trees beginning to clap their hands, and the light smiling as it breaks forth into the darkness in Jerusalem. And early that day, on the 8th Day, it would be the first day of a whole new creation. As the power of the eternal spirit enters the lifeless dead body of Jesus Christ and begins to shake the tomb where he is sealed so violently that this massive sealed stone rolls away. Does it remind you of another creation? On the sixth day, God made man and finished his creation and said, it is very good. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And the eighth day was the first day of the first creation. What am I describing to you? I'm describing the eternal hope of creation that will never be 
the same. For there's one place in all of creation that the will of God is now perfectly manifest. And that is the physical resurrected body of Jesus Christ. When he rises from the dead, his body transformed, he becomes the prototype of a whole new creation. He becomes the new humanity and he becomes what all of us will share in. Hebrews says this, we know that all things are subject to him, but at this present time, we don't see all things subjected to him, but we see who? Jesus. You want to know what that means? When we look at his resurrected body, we know that all things will be reconciled to him and become new. He is the firstborn from the dead, the beginning of a whole new creation. Isn't that amazing? The story symmetry of finishing, of resting from his work, of redeeming the first futile creation, redeeming humanity in the story, and then in his resurrected body, including us in a whole new creation. It says in Matthew 28, and I want to read this. It says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Can you picture this? They fall down as dead. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. What? Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. They went and then go quickly and tell the disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. The women run back, not knowing what to think, having encountered the angel but not finding any trace of the one they love. They run back to the disciples and it says they cause this big, huge stir in their midst. And guess what? Who are the first two out the door running to the tomb? Peter and John. And I love the way John records the story. And one of the disciples ran faster than the other. <laughs> I'm just going to write it into my eternal gospel that I am faster than you once and for all. I won't name names, but it's the one Jesus loves. Just to put an extra twist on it. Oh, their friendship and their rivalry is so beautiful and so dynamic, and it continues on through the next phase of the story. As they run there, they see just what the women have described. There folded up are the burial clothes 
of the one they have buried. But where has he gone? Dejected, they walk away. But guess who stays? It says, Mary tried to keep up with them. She ran along Mary Magdalene, in whom seven demons were cast out. Oh, another woman shows up in the story and gets the favor of God. Listen to this. She wouldn't leave. And the angels appear and they say, Woman, what are you weeping about? Who are you looking for? And she says, I'm looking for Jesus. And just then, another one asks her the same question. Woman, what are you looking for? Why are you so grieved of heart? She looks at him and she says, I am looking for Jesus. And it says, she thought he was the gardener. All the way back to the one who made a garden in the beginning. She's dejected. She's overcome with weeping. And he says one word. Mary. He calls you by name. And no one can say your name like he can. Because no one knows the worth of your soul like he does. And when he calls her name, she remembers the voice. And her eyes are open. And she runs to him and throws herself on his feet. I had one dream where I saw Jesus in my whole life. It was just after... I met the Lord when I was 18. And in this dream, I saw Jesus across the way and I ran to him as fast as I could and I threw myself on his feet and I began to weep and weep out of joy, laying before him and it was just glory. And you know what he did in this dream when I was 18? He blew my mind. He sat down all the way down to the ground, and he didn't say a word to me. He just began to stroke my hair. I will never forget that experience. Here is Mary at his feet, and you know what he says? Mary, you can't hang on to me right now. I haven't even gone back to my father yet. He showed up to Mary before he went back to his father. Do you know how much he wanted to go see his father? But he would take time on the way to ascension, on the way to presenting his own self as the once for all sacrifice forever for humanity, for a woman so he could call her by name. And turn her broken heart into a place of love again. And then, if you don't believe in the family kingdom, listen to the next words. I am going back to my father and 
your father. The story has just changed. I am going back to my God and your God. And that statement is so loaded and pregnant with the supremacy of Jesus' provision and sacrifice that I cannot even stand it. My dad is the same as your dad because of me. Do you feel that? Later that day, there's these two dejected, hopeless, wandering travelers on their way seven miles to Emmaus. Walking along, discussing their hopeless state. On the road to nowhere, meaningless, meaningless. When every major story has failed you, in the place of this utter hopelessness and barrenness, they turn to one another and their conversations. This is the only thing that I have that is real. And here comes the resurrection, walking with a couple hopeless travelers, completely changing our understanding of what resurrection's like. Unrecognizable. So, guys, what are you talking about? Can you believe this? This is God walking with our generation in their hopelessness where all the major stories have failed them, all the stories we've created to take away the fall, to alleviate our suffering and our pain. And in this place where we have nothing but our friendships and our communities that are broken in themselves with all of our cynicism and our deconstructionist worldview, here comes a humble, resurrected king walking with us, asking us questions. What are you talking about? They look at him. They stop. Their faces are dejected. They're like, are you crazy? Where are you from? What planet are you on? Have you not heard of Jesus of Nazareth, who is powerful in word and deed, who is killed by the chief priests and the elders? Have you not heard? He's like, go on, tell me. (laughs) What? And then he looks at them and he says, so slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. And beginning... The sermon of sermons that I would love to hear. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he walks through the entire story we've just been through, revealing who? Himself from all of the story. He is the fulfillment. And then cheeky Jesus acts like he's going to go on. And they're like, what? Stay with us. Come to our house. We have never heard anything like this. Are you kidding me? He's like, okay, easy sell. Just wanted to see if you bought the story. And he comes to the table with them. And isn't this where a disillusioned generation is going to awaken? And he begins to have conversation and eat with them. And fellowship, and at one point in the meal, this strange familiarity fills the atmosphere. 
and he looks at them, and I just imagine this twinkle in his eye, and he takes the bread, and he breaks it. And when he breaks the bread, it is a revelatory moment. Their eyes open, they recognize who it is, and then he disappears. What? And they look at each other and they're like, I can just imagine if this happened with my friend. Grab each other like, you saw that. Did, did that just happen? And they grab each other's shoulders and they said, did our hearts not burn within us on the road when he opened himself up from all of the scriptures? There is a generation waiting for a story that will make sense of all their hopeless, failed, self-script stories. Waiting to give back the meaning that all of this is not meaningless circles. Waiting to share the trajectory and the plot that their life can be a part of. And they run seven miles back to Jerusalem in the resurrection life that is blazing off their hair. Just out of breath, they show up to the fearful disciples. They're like, oh, we, the story. Okay, Peter's like, chill out. All right, what is going on? They're trying to get it out. And about the time they're explaining it, Jesus walks through the wall. He's a physical body walking through a physical wall because his physical reality is more real than the physical wall. He walks through the walls of impossibility in your life. Do you see? No matter what is real to you, the resurrection walks right through it. And he shows up with peace. Peace. Do you feel that? And they think it's a ghost. And they start, it says they are shocked with amazement so they don't believe. They're freaking out completely out of their minds. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Come here. Touch. Put your fingers in my wounds. What does it mean that the resurrection body of Jesus carries the redemptive marks of the life lived on earth? What does that mean about all of the wounds you incur in this human life? It all counts. Everything redeemed will glorify him forever. The resurrected king bears the marks of his crucifixion. Are you kidding me? And he's not scared of a world that doubts him. He says, come here. And then when they touch him, they still don't believe. And he goes, give me some fish. I will eat it in front of you. <laughs> what? He's like, watch, it's not going to fall out of my stomach. I'm not a ghost. Jesus is in resurrected body trying to get them to believe that he's real. Do you get this? 
God is in a physical body. Matter matters. It's good forever. He's not sending us to a disembodied state with harps and angels and clouds. He's making a whole new creation. This story moves from creation, heavens and earth, to new creation, new heavens, and a new earth. Wow. I love this. A week later, Thomas is not at this encounter. Thomas gets such a bad rap being called Doubting Thomas. He actually was so courageous that at one point in the gospel, he says to Jesus, I'll die for you right now. I'm like, how much of a doubter is that? I mean, we doubt with metaphysical type things. He's like, I will die right now for you. Okay. But he's so grieved And disappointed that he says to the disciples, unless I stick my hand in the side that they pierced with a spear, I won't believe. Unless I stick my hand into the the marks in his hands. And guess what? A week later, they're hanging out. Jesus walks through the wall again, through the crowd, straight to Thomas And what he is saying is, I am not intimidated with your pain, your disappointment, or your doubt. And guess what he does? He repeats Thomas's very words that he had said to the disciples, which means Jesus listens to your prayer. Everything you say inside and out, Jesus hears it. The resurrected Jesus hears it. And he walks to Thomas and he says, can I have your hand? Stick it right here. And then he takes his hand and he says, feel my side. What? Still overwhelmed. Jesus appears a dozen times to 500 people. One day the boys are out and they're on their boat. And they hear this guy from the side say, uh, not, not catching anything, huh? Like, wise guy. Ah. It's like, try to throw it in on the other side. <laughs> oh my gosh, we've heard that before. They throw it in. They pull out 153 large fish. Don't you love the scripture's details? Thank you very much. (laughs) 153. Maybe there's some significance to that being written. Or maybe God just has a sense of humor. And John looks at Peter and goes, It's him. And Peter, before he can get the words out, jumps into into the water, flailing with his clothes on. John's like, Oh my gosh. Again. Hey, we're still dry. They take the boat over. Peter's like, oh my gosh, something leaps in him. This is a moment for him. Something's rising in him. He makes it sopping wet to Jesus, who has, in the resurrection, built a nice fire and is cooking breakfast. Thank you very much. I would love to have pancakes and eggs from the resurrection. Right? What in the world? He's cooking some fish up. 
He says, hey, guys, I bet you're cold, especially you. (laughs) Sit down. Warm yourself up. Let's talk. The humanity of Jesus is so gorgeous. I love it. He couldn't get enough of being human. (laughs) It's so good. And uh, he looks at Peter full of shame. Because the one that he had loved with all of his being in front of his face and in his own earshot at one point denied him with cursing and blasphemy. And Jesus looks at him and for all three denials, he invites him to walk out of shame into love. Do you love me? And with progressive vulnerability, Jesus lowers his love level down to meet Peter where he is. And Peter is welcomed to be the cornerstone on which, or the rock on which the church is built, to carry the shepherding heart of his Messiah. And then he looks at him and says, Peter, When you were young, those slave, those orphan ways, you did what you wanted to do. It's a new beginning for you. When you're older, you're going to go where you do not want to go. And the scripture says, he said this to signify the kind of death that he would die. Peter, at the end of his life, will end up being crucified like his Lord. He will go where he does not want to go. But when he gets there, such a great work has been done in his heart that he says, one thing before you do this. Could you please crucify me upside down? I'm not worthy to die in the same way as my Lord. And then pop back into the story. Peter looks at John and goes, You said I'm going to die. What about him? Jesus looks at him and says, What's it to you if he lives forever? (laughs) John's like, Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel this friendship? I love it. I love it. It's so funny. And John will be the one that outlives them all. And they'll wheel him in at the end of his life. They'll take him in. And, uh, he would just say one thing, past 90 years old. He would shake his old finger and say, little children, love one another. That's what all of the revelation of leaning on the beloved gave him, simplified by the end of his life. Boom. Little children, love one another. Don't you love the gospel? So beautiful. For 40 days, uh, he would teach. I love this scripture in Romans 1, 3 through 4. Who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Declared to be the spirit of God by the power of resurrection. 
I want to run through just a few things quickly. Jesus resurrected becomes the better sacrifice. Hebrews 9.11 says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood or goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all. Can everybody say that together? Once and for all. Not just for some, right? Once for all. I love that definitive statement. By his own blood. Having obtained eternal redemption, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? In Hebrews 7, 27, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This Passover lamb, in a second we'll see the high priest, who was only able to enter in the natural once a year on behalf of the people. Jesus, this high priest, comes with himself as the offering into the presence of his Father and secures an eternal covenant on your behalf Wiping away everything that separated you from God from the beginning of the story, once and for all, paid in full, it is finished. It's better because it does not need to be repeated. It's better because it's for all and not just some. It's better because it's God himself that paid the price with his own life. He's the better high priest. Jesus is a sympathetic and perfect high priest, tempted in every way. This means that you can never say, Jesus doesn't understand me. You have someone resurrected, sitting at the right hand of the Father, who has suffered every human experience. In his own body. Specifically and acutely as he hung on a cross. He is the one you come to. Who loves you. Receives you and says. Yes. Come into the most holy place. With what? Confidence. Most holy place and confidence. Never existed in the same sentence. They would tie a bell to their ankle. And be dragged out by a rope. If they didn't do it perfectly. And now he says, sons and daughters, in Christ, come fully into the presence. The temple curtain is rent in two, open for all. The full, holy presence of God. Sympathetic. He lived a perfect life in relationship with the Father. He suffered and became the source of eternal salvation. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Jesus as the great high priest has gone into heaven. Jesus has entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain on our behalf. And check this one out, Hebrews 7.25. Jesus lives forever and has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What does this mean? 
It means that Jesus in his humanity, entering into the presence of God at the right hand of the Father, is actually holding your humanity in the presence of his Father. He is there forever representing you, not just praying prayers for you. That isn't what intercession is. It is his humanity holding your humanity in the perfect fellowship of the Trinitarian family. Do you see it's not based on your emotion? It's based on his perfect sacrifice Him as the perfect eternal high priest. And because he'll never die, he holds your humanity in the presence of God forever. Which means you, now just conceive of this, have the same favored place before the awesome presence of God that Jesus does. Do you think I am speaking heresy? (laughs) This is the gospel the good is it good news what and therefore because he's the perfect sacrifice because he's the perfect and everlasting high priest he is the mediator of a new covenant and guarantees it forever it cannot fail for he holds it in himself he marries you and you and you and whoever will believe Do you feel that? This part of the story is called the church. And guess what? It means we are his bride. It means we are his kingdom family. The coda is the moment of original cadence. It means that humanity will return to the heartbeat of the Father. It means that we will come back into resolution in Christ and we will dwell from the home key. And in fact, we will become the home of God. This is Jesus's and the Father's, and the Spirit's eternal purpose. Ephesians 3. His intent was that now, through the church, get this, this is you guys, right? That have a hard time balancing your checkbooks sometimes, right? This is, this is us with all our messed up relationships. This is us, just like the people in the story. Through the church, the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Jesus was the tangible, touchable, audible expression of the glory of God. And guess what he now says? If the world's going to see God, they're going to see me in you. What? That's your big eternal purpose? Are you crazy? Why didn't you just stay on the planet? Why didn't you go up, come back down? What's this whole middleman thing? I'm looking for a suitable helper. I'm looking for a bride. I'm looking 
for a oneness that will co-create and partner with me. I don't want to cut out the middleman. Excuse me, that's you. <laughs> what? That's the part of the story we're about to go into. Jesus stands on a mountain and he looks at them, Matthew 28. And listen to the kingdom family commission. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Is this sounding familiar? With story language? Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the identity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, in this great kingdom family commission, says, I want you to know I've regained the forfeited authority you gave away in the garden. And I, the human Adam, the second Adam, hold it. Would you like it back? Yes, we would like it back, Jesus. He says, okay, now go and baptize all people in the family glory nature. Go and saturate them. Baptize them in water. And they'll go down and they'll die with Christ. And they'll come up a new creation. And then saturate their lives in my commands. Filling them with the kingdom reality of sons and daughters. Father, Son, and Spirit. Saturating their being. This is the joy we get to walk into. And he says, oh yeah. On one hand, you have my cosmic authority. On the other hand, you have my ever-living presence. Not a bad sandwich, right? All authority and my presence. Move forward. Take the story back. They're like, yes, yes, we will. Okay, we've seen you. You're resurrected. 40 days, you're hanging out. You walk through walls. Let's go out and do it. He's like, hang on. John 20, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He begins to teach them. Go with me to Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Why is this fellow Theophilus introducing his book like this, Acts, Acts of the Apostles? Well, the reason is because he is Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke and Acts acted as the viral Jesus vision of the first century being passed around. He says, my first book, Theophilus, the Gospel of Luke, was written to describe to you in great detail all that Jesus began to do and teach. What is he now implying? This next one is all Jesus is going to continue to do and teach through, yeah, you guys. What? The opening of Acts says that Jesus is with them 40 days unfolding the kingdom. I love that because he's like, the things I taught you when I was with you for those three years, I can't improve on them. He's still unfolding the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, right? The kingdom is like a, a farmer who planted seed. The, 
The kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom is like, you know, and he goes on and on. And he's unfolding the nature of what he's enjoyed forever. Forty days with them. And then they're like, okay, okay, okay. We want to go tell everybody. And he goes, no, you have to be sent in the same way that my father sent me. And then he looks at them in Acts 1, and he says this. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the, can we say this together? Gift my father has promised. Oh, I adore the Holy Spirit. I adore the Holy Spirit. Everything that I know that is beautiful and noble and excellent and worthy of Jesus is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Every act of good, of kindness, of joy in my life is a result of the Holy Spirit. I would not be here standing, talking to you without the Holy Spirit. When I was 18 years old, brokenhearted like Mary, I cried out and I said, are you real? Destroyed in my heart from failed love and relationships. And guess who responded? My dad said, I love you so much, Adam Jefferson Cox. I want to give you a gift. I want to take that far off, distant song in your ears called my love. And I want to put the song inside of you. The song of the kingdom family. The song of Abba Father. That will be from the inside out a melody of unfailing love. And the Holy Spirit will never stop proclaiming, no matter what you say to him, no matter what you do, no matter if you grieve him, the Spirit of God will live in you and proclaim to you, you are my favorite. I love you. I, your dad, am going to live on the inside and I'm going to appeal to the core of your being that you are loved because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. And even in the moments when you scream at me and say, why do I love you more than you love me? Again, you'll hear that song. I love you. I love you. You belong to me. You are my son. And I'm pleased with you. I'm not saying this is easy to receive all the time. In fact, some of the most painful moments of my life were the Holy Spirit trying to get this song up into my life and, do, and take away that song of performance and diminishment. Those were the breaking moments. 
But I am telling you, I adore the Holy Spirit. When Jesus mentions this, the Holy Spirit is like, I get to come into the story and I get to fill the ones that I love. The person of God, the Holy Spirit, he is not the weird cousin at the family reunion that nobody wants to invite over because he's too awkward. He's not a part of God. He's very God. He's not schizophrenic. He doesn't have one part of his personality that's all crazy, fruity, loopy Holy Spirit and the other part that's nice, fruits of the Holy Spirit. Peace, gentle, loving, joyful. Oh, we like that Holy Spirit, but you are weird over here, right? Every act of his power is saturated in gentleness. Every moment that he breaks into history with the miracle is exploding with joy and kindness. Every act of bringing forth love is an act of insane, eternal power. The Holy Spirit is one. The Holy Spirit is God. I love the Holy Spirit. When the Father thought of you from eternity, He thought, what could be the very best thing I could possibly in my infinite generosity give them? He goes, oh yeah, I got an idea myself inside of them. Every other gift is absolutely nothing compared to the gift of Abba. This is dad's very spirit. Like you've got the best dad in the world living inside of your little body, coaching you on how to be loved. Some of you in here are saying, I don't know what to do with this based on the experience with my own dad. I am so sorry. And I am so glad that you have the perfect father spirit living in you to supply what you are lacking. And so much more. Some of you who have good dads... Can you imagine the voice of your dad in your inner man all the time saying, you're amazing. I love you. I'm proud of you. My parents called me today on my birthday, said, I, we love you. We're proud of you, right? The Spirit's sending you text messages from the inside of your being all day. You're really cute. I like you. I, oh, whatever. I don't want to talk about that screw-up thing you did. Whatever. I love you. You're amazing. You belong to me. You're with me forever. It gets better. Hey, would you like to do something fun? Let's see the world look more like God. <laughs> this is the spirit. Jesus is like, you guys are crazy if you think you're going to run out there in your own zeal and take the world for me. He goes, it doesn't work. It's called religion. A form of godliness lacking the power is absolute ridiculousness, if that's a word. Religion cannot change the world. It's never worked since the garden. Those fig leaves are ugly. They're still ugly. 
our own zeal, our own standards, our own way, our own strength, it does not change the world. He says, I'd like to give you a gift. They will spin the re- If you want acts in a little summary, how do some crazy Jewish men and women learn to coexist with God on the inside? These people do it so wonderfully and so messily. They don't have a handbook on it. They're like, how do we exist with you inside of us? It's very clumsy. Learning to fellowship with God from the inside out. So beautiful. And uh, after he says this, he says, you know, John came and baptized you with water, but I'm going to baptize you in fire and the Holy Spirit. That word baptism means saturate every cell of your body with his living glory. Who would like to be baptized in God? I'm saying, sign me up. July the 5th, 1998, every cell of my body was radiating with an unfailing love that I cannot explain in words. So I used to run around in high school saying, if I can just touch you, maybe you'll feel this. I really believed that if I could just get my hand on someone, they might be able to feel it because I could not explain to them what was coursing through my body. Guys, God is alive. He is real. And he says, I'm going to saturate your being in daddy's love. All of you, because it's what I've wanted since the beginning. And then he, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what makes the Kingdom Family Commission possible. Power. Divine power. You have everything you need for life and godliness by the divine power of God, the scripture says. And he says, I'm going to let you be a family witness. When they see you, they'll see what that beautiful Father, Son, Spirit glory looks like. This is my dream. This also provides a beautiful outline for the book of Acts as the family grows. Chapters 1 through 7 will be Jerusalem in three years. Chapters 8 through 12, Judea and Samaria will be a 12-year run. And chapters 13 through 28, to the ends of the earth. And oh my goodness, does this little statement set up a crazy drama. Because remember, who thinks they're the covenant people exclusively? And God's, as a dad, is going to say, I do love you, and I love everyone and ripping off cultural prejudice ripping off ethnocentric thinking just beginning to tear at their hearts until they open wide their arms and even give their very lives so dad can have a family of all people oh i love it all that jesus will continue to do and teach through ordinary people like you and me. Wow. So they begin to pray. Actually, let's go back. You can't miss this part. Acts 1, 9 and 10. <laughs> they say to him, well, uh, um, what, what's the deal here? 
Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He's like, that is not for you to know. And as he gives them that commission, he looks at them one last time. And can you imagine this? Your best friend. He's like, all right, I love you. Through the sky. They're like, what? The angels are looking at him like, what are you looking for? He's coming back the same way he just left. We'll get into the story in just a second. Amen. Let's take a break. Looking up into the sky. He's gone. He's really gone. (laughs) I guess it's our story now. What do we do? (laughs) They look at each other. Well, I guess we do the last thing he said to do. We wait. (laughs) And they begin to remember together the lifestyle that he taught them, how to be in the Father's presence. And for 10 days, we know it's 10 days, they don't have any idea how long wait means. You know, that would be crazy. Wait. You know when the Lord says that to you. I am answering you. Wait. Ah, yeah, yeah, keep waiting. It's going to be good, right? I'm a good dad. It's going to be good. It's a gift. Wait. Oh, all your stuff comes out in the waiting, doesn't it? There they wait. I love that it says Jesus' mother is there waiting with them. Really? Can you imagine? She worships her son as the Messiah. Guess who becomes the elder of the church? Jesus' natural brother, James. Guess who dies first? Martyred. I don't know if he died first, but who's martyred? James, his brother. Wow. There they wait. And they wait in prayer, and they wait in one accord. This is like the antithesis of the Tower of Babel. They're waiting, right? They're waiting before him. Waiting in humility, waiting on him. Waiting for the gift. And uh, they decide to cast lots. For the 12th disciple, you never hear of the guy again, so I guess they quit casting lots from there. They're like, ooh, dud, I don't know. (laughs) We're done with casting lots. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He was probably an amazing man. I I have no idea what his name is. I've forgotten it. Matthias, that's right. Beautiful human. We loved him. Casted lots for old Matthias. And uh, there they wait. And the day of Pentecost comes, another festival. 
The day of Pentecost was the celebration of what? The giving of the law. Uh Uh-oh. Story change. There they're waiting, and as they wait, the God who came out of the universe and knelt down into the dirt and formed a beautiful bride and, or a, a beautiful son breathed into Adam now comes and begins to breathe and create for himself a people. The house begins to shake. And you can read this in Acts 2. They were all together in one place. Suddenly the sound of a blowing violent wind comes from heaven and fills the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Do you see The God of heaven breathing in and making them a living being. And instead of fire resting on a mountain and shaking the mountain, fire is resting on each human being. What happened when the fire rested on the mountain? God gave the law. Now at the celebration of the law, God is giving the Spirit to write the law inside of human flesh. Uh Uh-oh, new covenant is here. The Spirit will fulfill the law. Romans 8 says that the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us who do not live according to the natural flesh, but according to the Spirit. For Jesus did not condemn man, he condemned sin in sinful man. Do you believe that the righteousness of Christ is yours and that the Spirit of God is the law of God written inside of you and that the Spirit of God, Ezekiel says, moves you into the covenant faithfulness that you were never able to achieve without him. What? The Jews who could not keep their covenant love, God said, I marry you and I put my spirit in you to fulfill my own faithfulness. And now, as the new covenant promised, the fire rests on every head because from the greatest to the least, God will know each one, and they will know him. Unprecedented intimacy and the forgiveness of sins. What a moment. God takes this story again, just like the Passover meal where Jesus says, I am the Passover. God takes the celebration of the law to these devout Jews and says, hello, the fulfillment of it is inside you. They burst into tongues, and it says that God-fearing Jews from all the nations around were gathered there. You want to know why they burst into tongues? Because Dad wants to speak the heart language of every nation. Because Dad wants sons and daughters from every nation. So these 
people were shocked out of their minds because they heard the amazing wonders of God in their own heart language. God was saying, listen, I want them all, every nation. And even though they were Jews, they spoke different languages. And so the tongues of the heart languages of God were flowing out of them so that God could reach every single heart. Oh, I love the gift of tongues. And then they realized that from within them, they remembered Jesus' words as the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance that from within you, a rivering, a liver, a liver? That's one of my most significant God story mistakes right there. A massive liver would grow from the inside of you, filtering out all of the talk. I'm just kidding. The river of living water would flow from the inside and they actually feel God in them. God is not the distant 5,000 pound God that if we pray and fast enough for, we can drag him into our space. No, the rest of sons and daughters communes with him from the inside out. Oh, we will pray differently when we know we're sons and daughters. We will mission differently when we know we are sons and daughters. And it fills them, and from that prayer meeting is born the greatest mission movement in human history. The Spirit of God on the inside. Wow. And some of them think they're drunk because it's nine in the morning. I don't know how overwhelmed, but there are times the love of God and the joy of God is so intoxicating on your life that you can't keep it in. You try to keep the infinite God in your little body. (laughs) Okay? Get filled with God intensely. See what happens. They think that he's drunk. They're they're drunk. And Peter, the, the one who had no courage, stands up and begins to proclaim. And what does he start with? The days of Joel have just been fulfilled. It's better... Then even God in the flesh, now God wants to live in all flesh. And let's read this together. In the last days, which started with the resurrection of Jesus, by the way. Amen. We've been in the last days for a long time. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. All, 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 all. Do you feel Abraham cheering from heaven? Yeah! (laughs) What I believed for is about to break forth. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Can I tell you something? It's not just that sons and daughters will have predictive words about the future. Prophecy is about seeing where things are going and living now like you've apprehended them. In other words, what I'm saying is the church, the kingdom family of sons and daughters, will become the very prophetic word, doing it here like they do it there. If you can grab that in your brain, it will change your life. Sons and daughters are the prophetic word. They're not just going to foretell the future. They're going to absolutely display the future. And he says, this thing is for young 
Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams, even on servants, men and women. Hallelujah. I'll pour out my spirit in those days. They will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and bills of smoke, apocalyptic language. Come on. Sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood red before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Generations across genders, don't you love the kingdom family? And when he has said, this right now is that, which is a great way to do prophecy, (laughs) we're experiencing the fulfillment of what he said. He shocked everybody, and then he proceeds to preach the gospel. The good news of great joy The story of Israel, which has climaxed in one man, Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. He says, Jesus Christ fulfilled everything. Look at the gospel he preaches. He says, Jesus' life was authenticated by God to us by miracles and signs. That one is authentic, he's saying. Jesus' death for sin by God's set purpose and foreknowledge And because of the wickedness of men. He preaches Jesus' resurrection, freeing him from agony of death. And he says it was impossible for death to hold him. Then he begins to proclaim Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God. And then Jesus receiving and pouring out the Father's promised gift of the Holy Spirit on humanity. And then he says, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he's looking in their eyes, both Lord and Christ. What would you like to say about that? They are cut to the heart. 3,000 respond. What would you do? And when they respond, they cry out, What do we do? I'm not going to go through all this, but this is the in Christ message that essentially he says. He says, Turn, repent, and your sin will be forgiven. He says, essentially, when that happens, your dead spirit will be born again, alive. Your spirit will be filled with the spirit of resurrection. From the inside out, you will be held in the fellowship of God forever, eternal life, to know God. Then he declares to them, you are righteous. You receive Jesus's covenant faithfulness by no merit of your own. Your relationship before the Father is built on the sole foundation of Jesus' performance, not yours. Can anyone say amen, please? Your relationship with God is built on the only foundation, which is Jesus' performance on your behalf. His favor is your favor. And then he says, and oh yes, be baptized. And when you go under the water, you will Die with him in his crucified death to your old man. And when you come out, you will be a part of his new creation, his new humanity, the spirit-filled humanity. You are a part of his family. Does born again mean more to you now that you realize this thing is about a family? The only way to get into a family in the natural is to be born into it, right? And for those who lose their birth parents to be adopted into it. Wow. And then he says, 
So receive the Holy Spirit. And I love this part. He says, the gift is for you and your children. And guess who else? All those who are far off. I remember I read that one day because when I was filled with the Spirit, some people immediately came to me and said, no, all that ceased in the first century. I read this scripture in the gift. He said from the very beginning, this gift is for you and your children and for everyone who will come. And I was like, I'm in the story. (laughs) I'm in. I made it in right there. I've been filled with the Spirit of Abba Father. 3,000 respond. Can you imagine if we walked out tonight out of this meeting and began to tell the beautiful good news of the kingdom of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ and 3,000 were cut to the heart and we go, okay, the boiler room just grew by 4 billion percent. What just happened, (laughs) right? You know what they do? And I love this. They do exactly what Jesus did with them for three years. They begin to welcome them into hundreds of homes around Jerusalem, around meals. They devote themselves to life together. Guys, the world is not going to see the reality of Jesus unless they come into our life together. It is a life that carries the atmosphere of the kingdom. I love the word devotion because it's like love and discipline mingled together with this great mark of passion. They devoted themselves to the story, the scriptures, the apostles' teaching. Before it was written down, they were rehearsing the life and ministry of Jesus with one another, making application. Can you imagine that beautiful devotion? Oh, tell me that story again where he multiplied the boy's lunch. Tell me that story again where he spoke to the little girl who was raised. And the eyewitnesses would begin to declare what they had seen, and, and they Tell me that story again where he walked through the wall and then he wanted you to eat, he wanted to eat fish. You know, like, they began to devote themselves to the teachings of Jesus. Tell me again what he said about blessed are the pure in heart and the meek. Tell me again. And they would devote themselves. Guys, let's devote ourselves ongoing together to the story. Let's tell it and retell it and retell it with resurrection life on it. It is living and active. They devoted themselves to fellowship or the life together. That was not just ordinary relationship because I like the clothes you wear or I'm interested in the same things you're interested in. This was Christ is the central covenantal bonding of our relationship. No matter what you do, I can't get rid of you. When I was saved into Jesus, hello, I got saved into his body. You don't get one without the other. We get each other forever. I hope you like one another. (laughs) Everyone who knows Jesus is covenanted together in his body. We are one. We don't become one. We live into the oneness we are in his body. And if Jesus isn't the center of community, community is idolatry. And oh my goodness, please let us not walk down that road. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Koinonia, fellowship, has to do with Christ-centered covenantal family relationship. It was a devotion that they not live individualistic lives because, back to the beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. 
And unless we're together as God is together, how can we show God to the world? We're his display, aren't we? We're the administration of his grace to the earth. We're the pillar and foundation of truth. I've got to move on. I'm getting stuck. I really love the church. You can go back for just a second. I've got to finish some of these. They devoted themselves to breaking of the bread because Jesus was the center. So the rehearsal of the Lord's supper of the table was a rehearsal that everything they had that was good was in Christ and his death and his resurrection, right? Their lives were covenant lives. They weren't just emotionally based. So whenever they met, it was their joy to break bread together. And they devoted themselves to prayer because prayer was the place. Prayer is a big fancy word for talking two-way dialogue with God. Everything changes in prayer when you know who he is and who you are when you come to him. Sons and daughters, that's how they prayed. And they lived in his presence and everyone was filled with awe. Why? Because God lived in them. It's not a boring life. When God's trying to get out of you all the time and touch all the other people that he wants to bring home to his heart, it cannot be boring. When God is the God who conquers impossibility for fun, it cannot be boring. When God loves to bring life out of barren wombs and broken tombs, he likes to come forth with resurrection in every place you think is hopeless. Name a place in your mind right now that you think is utterly hopeless. You have just thought of the place of Jesus' joy to rock and blow your mind and change your world. I rehearsed one with my close friends today. They washed my feet with their love and prayer. I told them what was the most fearful and vulnerable thing in my life this morning. And then they said, guess what? Jesus wants to bring his glory right out of that barrenness. There's a reason you're so afraid of these things. It's because Awe is about to come on you when the Holy Spirit takes you on a journey of showing his goodness in the places of your impossibility. Life with God is anything but boring, guys, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled, filled, filled as Jesus was filled. And they met home to home, house to house, around the table, names and faces, grace flowing, collective lifestyle, right? Where everyone counted, everyone had a gift, everyone had a grace, everyone brought something of food to the table. They were glad, they were sincere because the atmosphere of the kingdom is joyful. It's a party and it was attractive and every day someone said, let me in the kingdom family. They modeled A new way of being human, a colony of heaven, a foretaste of what the Trinity will do with us forever. It was viral, contagious. Wouldn't we like to be this church? It's normal, ancient normal, new normal to us, right? And this is where he took us. Man, this thing goes crazy. Acts has a real point, and one of their points is this. The name of Jesus is absolutely unstoppable. As Pete Gregg says, Jesus is not good at being dead. He's alive. It didn't matter if they put them in prison. God would open the prison. It didn't matter who wanted to stop him, who tried to shut him up, who said don't talk in this name. They would say, what are you so afraid of? Should we obey you or God? They would come before the same Sanhedrin. 
And they looked in their eyes, and they, the guys looked back, oh, ordinary men filled with God, what is going on? They were turning Jerusalem upside down in chapters 1 through 7, the unstoppable name of Jesus. They're healing people. They're giving the life of resurrection inside of them. Peter and John are running around as best buddies all over the place, wreaking kingdom havoc and mischief, as John Peterson loves to say. Kingdom mischief everywhere. (laughs) Kingdom mischief. Give me a place where there's depression. I'm bringing joy. Give me a place where someone says it's impossible. Give me a place wrought with shame and guilt and unforgiveness. We'll bring the love of God. That's fun. I don't want a form of godliness with no power. That is absolutely horrible and boring. We've tried it as the church for a long time, right? We want adoption love flowing to a broken world that wants to come home desperately but is lost for direction. And they were having a blast. And uh, right at the end of this series, I mean, it's going so crazy, they have to choose seven others. And... They're called to to wait on tables. And their qualifier to wait on tables was filled with the Holy Spirit. It didn't matter what your job was in the church. Filled with the Holy Spirit is the requirement. And great wisdom. (laughs) I love that. And these turkeys go off doing more kingdom mischief. They're going nuts. Philip. And one of them's name is Stephen. And Stephen takes an entire chapter of the Bible, thank you very much, to tell the story of God preaching the gospel from beginning all the way up to looking them in the eyes and saying, so guess what? God doesn't want to live in temples made by hands. And before he can share the plot of we're going to be that home, they pile him with stones and kill him. As they do that, he speaks out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What? Who said that before? And then he sees the one who said it, standing at the right hand of God, as the stones bury him. And the garments were thrown at the feet of a man named Saul. And guess what? If we forgive anyone his sins, they will be forgiven. The mercy released from Stephen's mouth unlocks the destiny on Saul's heart, infuriates him even more. But guess what? It's just a matter of time. Because mercy always outweighs judgment. The mercy and meekness of Stephen breaks the back of the demonic assault against Saul's life to keep him in religious blindness. And Saul gets a letter, and he gets so mad, and he says, give me permission to arrest these people and bring them back to Jerusalem. They weren't called Christians. That was an insult. They were called the way because they followed in the way of Jesus. Let us come home. (laughs) Come follow me. They look so much like him. He goes and he starts to try to drag people out, imprison them. And while he's on his way, Philip, oh, go back just a little bit. Philip starts doing crazy, beautiful kingdom mischief. And this is where 
God says, he uses the very edict to persecute the church to get them out of their Jewish-centered covenantal mind. And when persecution happens, it scatters them all but the apostles, and everywhere they go, it backfires on the enemy because they go and the word of the gospel of Jesus resurrected begins to spread everywhere they go. Philip comes to Simon the sorcerer called the great power, and the power of God is so mighty that this guy bows down and actually wants to buy it off of him. Wow. And uh, John and Peter get word that God's moving in Samaria. Samaria, the half-breeds, the dogs. Why is God touching them? That they go there and they say, well, you've received the gospel. How about the Holy Spirit too? They lay hands and boom, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow. God's filling. Filling his temple. And then you see more exploits throughout Samaria. And then you see Philip walking alongside a chariot, and there's a man reading Isaiah 53 out of the story. And as he's reading, Philip looks at him and says, do you have any idea what you're reading? He's like, no, this is a very confusing book. Can anyone identify? He's like, yeah, I know. Can I tell you a story? Sure, come up. He begins to tell him the story, starting with that scripture and through the whole of scripture. (laughs) Tells him the story, And Jesus, of course, is the climax because he's the good news of redemption. And the guy says, well, what the heck? There's a body of water. Baptize me now. And the first missionary to another continent is sent out. Hallelujah. Right? There you go. Gospel to Africa. Meanwhile, it goes back to Saul. He's on his way to kill some Christians. Happy day. On his way to Damascus. And as he's walking along, all of the sudden, the full glory of Jesus opens up. God rips back the canvas of the earth somehow of time and shows like the Mount of Transfiguration, his full radiance so much immediately. The others hear the voice, but they can't see it. But when Saul sees it, he is blinded by it. Physically blinded. And his first words, Who are you, Lord? What a profound statement. Who are you, Lord? Isn't that the first question the enemy always tries to rob? Who is God? Who are you, Lord? Jesus booms. I am Jesus And now, can you feel your dignity in this room? Whom you are persecuting. Wait a second. Jesus identifies with you and me so much that he says what people do to you, they actually do to him. He didn't say, he's persecuting my church. He said, you are touching my very body. I feel it. What you feel, he feels. And he is totally undone. He says, go and wait. Go and wait in Damascus. They take him back to a house. He's struck blind for three days. Can you imagine? He has three days where he can see nothing but the blinding light flashing in his head. (laughs) 
He can't see anything else except the last thing he's seen. And he can't hear except the last thing he's heard. Why? I am Jesus. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Three days. And then dude's having his quiet time. Ananias says, hello, buddy. How you doing? Yeah, good cup of coffee there. Um, got a fun thing for you to do today. Everyone was filled with awe. You never knew what was going to happen, right? Just wanted to listen to the Lord, except this day. Yeah, there's this guy, he's, yeah, never mind. Uh, he's at this other guy's house, and he, he, uh, he's blind. I need you to go baptize him in the Holy Spirit for me today. What's his name? Uh, Saul. What? The guy who's killing everyone? What are you doing? You're setting me up to die in my quiet time? Thank you very much. Thank you. It's like, okay, fine. Ah, he's wrestling, looking for his car keys, right? What is he doing? He goes over there, and he goes to the guy's house, and he walks in the door, and sure enough, there is the murderer. Blind, weak, humbled, groveling around. And God has spoken to Saul simultaneously and said, a man named Ananias is coming to heal you. And when Ananias places his hand on him, I love it, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say it again. (laughs) Filled with God. It's the key to the kingdom. You can't bring the atmosphere of God to earth unless you've got God. And he's filled. And then Ananias says, you will learn how much you must suffer for his name. And you will be my voice to the Gentiles, my witness to the Gentiles. Thank you, God. All of us in this room say, thank you, God. (laughs) Oh. I want to read this quote by Preben Vang. The conversion experience of Paul and his called to become an apostle of the Gentile world literally changed the course of world history. Indisputably, no single person except for Jesus himself has had a greater transformative impact on world history than this man from Tarsus. His zeal and his message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ changed the way people thought from Jerusalem to Rome. Paul's message enabled people from all nations, all backgrounds, all traditions to come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through his son, Jesus Christ. The impact proves immeasurable. Thank you, God. Immediately... Paul goes to these guys in Jerusalem and says, well, actually, immediately when he leaves the house, he goes into the synagogue and begins to proclaim that day that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of his rabbinical studies of his entire life. Guys, it's going to take an encounter, every one of you, to change the world. I'm not telling you what it will look like, how you might think it'll be. I'm saying you need to meet the Lord again and again and again. The world changed because the worst of the worst of the worst met God. 
And in 1 Timothy, Paul literally says, I'm a trophy for his mercy. Meaning, if God could get me, anybody can make it into the story. God wanted me because he wanted to prove that everybody was qualified. That's how Paul thought of himself. A son of grace. A saint of mercy. We need encounters with the Lord. Now, Saul, Paul, will have to go and spend something like a decade or more getting his Jewish rabbinical brain re-story wired to connect every dot and story with Jesus Christ as the fulfillment. And God doesn't take any shortcuts. He goes back to his hometown Tarsus and gets persecuted and persecuted and persecuted as he in hiddenness goes through his seminary over again. Whoa. Okay, ready for Acts chapter 10? This is one giant step for humanity. There's this guy Peter again. And Peter's doing these awesome exploits. And God says to him, stay in Joppa. Stay here. So he bunks up at this house, Simon the Tanner in Joppa. He's hanging out there. And uh, one day, having his normal day, he goes up on the roof to pray his normal Jewish prayer three times a day. He's hanging up there. And all of a sudden... It says the food's being ready. I don't know if he smells it, but it says he gets really hungry. This gurgling stomach is about to open something very massive. So he gets so hungry. I don't know how hungry he is, but he goes into a trance. Usually it's after I've eaten Thanksgiving turkey that I go into a trance. But he goes in while he's hungry. And while he's in this trance, a sheet, a four-cornered sheet, lowers down... From heaven, heaven's open, a sheet comes down, and on the sheet, he sees four-footed animals, he sees lizards, reptiles, all kinds of unclean animals to a Jew. And God looks at him, and he says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Okay, so God's not a vegetarian. All right, so rise, kill, and eat, right? Peter's like, this takes the gears of his Jewish heart and just begins to grind them. Do you understand? He's lived his entire life trying to do everything the law has said to do. And God, who I think wrote the law, just came to him and said, break it. I'm hearing the devil. I'm definitely hearing the devil. God says, you're not hearing the devil. Lowers the, he doesn't say that, and it applies it. Lowers the sheet again, right? Lowers the sheet again, and here comes the words that sing into your spirit. Do not call unclean what I have made clean. He doesn't know what he's just heard. A third time, the sheet lowers. One, two, three. Three days before this, there's this Gentile hanging out and he's doing whatever. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, it's a good day for you. 
I've heard your prayer and your gifts to the poor. Can't you think of a world trying to please God in their own strength? And God says, you know what? If they have an earnest heart, I'm coming to find them. I love this. He says, I want you to send your servants down the road to Joppa. It's going to take them like a day. Tell them to go down to the seaside, down to Simon the Tanner's house. Go down to Joppa. There's this guy. He's staying at the house. He's just had an encounter. He's going to take you to the next step. Why does God want to include us in his sovereign salvation purposes? Why didn't he just preach him the gospel? He sent an angel from heaven, for goodness sake. Nope. Go find my son. I want a suitable helper. I love it. He's also got huge plans because he knows why he's sending Peter specifically. There, they start out on the journey. About the time that Simon finishes his experience, divine timing, Simon's like, okay, what now, God? He's like, knock, 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 downstairs. God says to Peter, and he calls him Simon because that's the word that Cornelius has heard from the Lord. He changes it, and God now says, Simon, which is really cool. And he says, go downstairs. They're here to take you. They're okay. They're my dudes. He's like, okay. Let's them in. They spend the night there early that next morning. Peter's like, I got to take some buddies with me. He takes some friends. They all go back. They get to Cornelius' house. Cornelius has gathered the entire extended family and some of his close friends, and they're waiting for whoever this crazy person is that is coming. Can you feel the anticipation in the air? Peter gets to the door frame like this. And he looks in and he looks down. He's like, I've never done this in my whole life. I'm about to walk into the house of a Gentile. When he steps across that threshold, you enter the story. He goes like this. He walks in. They fall at his feet. He says, I'm not God. I'm just here to tell you about him. Can I tell you a story about Jesus of Nazareth? Anointed by the Holy Spirit to do good and destroy the works of the devil. Acts 10.38. I love that. I could have done the whole message just by saying that verse last night. Anointed to do good and destroy every work of the devil. Here comes the new Joshua. And then, oh, this is awesome. Before he can finish the gospel story, the Holy Spirit is sitting in heaven freaking out because he's waited eternity to go to the Gentiles and before the message is over he jumps on the house and fills the whole room and the Jews that are with Peter go oh my gosh the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit well I guess if we did and they did well maybe we can baptize them what do we do this blows all of our Jewish theology oh my gosh what are we going to do? <laughs> a family of all nations begins. Guys, come on. The Holy Spirit wants 
God has passion to dwell in you. So much that he sent his only son to die. He defeated sin and death on your behalf. He made you a worthy home for God. Come on. They have to go back to Jerusalem and explain themselves. So in very acute detail, two chapters in a row, he tells this story word for word, waiting to be killed, you know? Like, okay, so then there was this trance, the angels came, Holy Spirit GPS, the guys came to the door, I didn't mean to do it, then I, God said, don't call them unclean, I've made a place for myself, and my son Jesus has made them clean once and for all people they're all clean waiting to be my house they're consecrated he tells them this story and they go we can't argue with that you are peter you know what i mean if god's come to them okay a few chapters later paul comes out of hiding because barnabas the beautiful servant comes to get him and serve him because he lays his life down knowing there's this great calling on this persecuted persecutor of a man. And they go to Antioch, this hub in the north of the land. And there they're fasting and praying. And God comes back like he came at the house in Damascus and says, tap, tap, tap. Remember that word? You will go to the Gentiles and suffer for my name. Today, as the elders have gathered, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work I have called them to the Gentiles. And here comes the name and the word of God spreading to the whole known world. In these three journeys, Cyprus and Galatia takes two years. Galatia, Asia, Asia Minor, and Macedonia, three more years. And then Paul revisits those again. I want to read to you the passion of Paul. Will you? This is his kingdom family heart. 1 Corinthians 4, go back just one. I mean, I love this because what he was doing is bringing the kingdom family. And I'll show you his ministry pattern in just a second. But essentially, he says you have 10,000 guardians of Christ, but you don't have many fathers. This is the kind of church I'm after, a family reality of grace. Here's Paul's passion. Romans 15, 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Guys, soak this passion into your heart. It is the passion of the Holy Spirit to touch everyone. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. The Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And so on and so on. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in me. You guys, the story will go all the way to the ends of the earth at that time. It goes to Rome. And the way it does is they think they have Paul captured in chains. And they don't realize they're transporting atomic resurrection material. 
They think they have him and God has them. And God is delivering a resurrection life bomb to the most powerful ruler in the earth, Caesar. And the last few chapters of Acts, he's in house arrest. And it says, whoever came over, he shared the gospel with them. You guys, welcome to Acts 29. (laughs) I remember the first time I read it, it ended so abruptly. And I thought, what is this? When I started to study the story, it was like God saying, it's because the ends of the earth still exist. I want to look at this next scripture. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Love this. Jesus said, before he left, he said, just as I'm going, I, at some point, am going to come back bodily to this earth. I'm going to rip open the heavens again. And I'm going to come receive my family of all nations. We're standing in the story, and I'm going to invite you into it in just a second. But I want to look at the very end of the story of the kingdom family. You have 2,000 years of church history as a legacy from that moment in Acts. And yet, guys, there are still many nations who have never heard the name of Jesus. There are many in the nations who have heard the name of Jesus that are orphaned and enslaved, and they're waiting for a people, a family filled with the Spirit of God to show them Jesus. And this people, this family on the earth, gets a vision of the end. And I want to read these two passages out of Revelation before I invite us in. The kingdom family of all nations around his throne. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Imagine this with me, you guys. This is what God's wanted since the very beginning. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on a throne and to the Lamb. He is the center of history. He is the center of heaven's affections. And he is surrounded by all languages, by all peoples, by all nations. One of my secret prayers, which I'm about to share with you, I guess it's not a secret anymore, is that someday I will stand before this man with my family, having brought to him some nation that had never heard his name. He is saying through his family, This intercessional cry, which is twofold. As a bride, you say, bridegroom, come. As a family, you say to the earth, come home to an orphaned world. And with our lives, we receive them. At the very end of the story of the scripture, 
we find this amazing fulfillment of the entire dream of the eternal purpose of God to adopt a family into the eternal trinity. And what lies ahead is not some merely spiritual salvation, but the ultimate reconciliation of spirit and matter, the reclaiming and restoring of God's own creation, the reconciliation of all things to God. And here's the end of the story. Revelation 21, 1, 3 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is Done. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Orphans no longer. And we stand in the tension of that word which we have as the anchor of our soul in his resurrected body. And we stand in the tension of the death and pain and mourning and crying. And we stand as an intercessory, priestly chosen family. And what he has invited us to do is to live his kingdom, to bring his kingdom To display his kingdom as it is in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want you to stand with me. The Father, Son, and Spirit welcome us into the kingdom family story. I want us to end with the end of the scriptures, that great cry from the Spirit and the Bride, both saying, come. And I want us to yell, come on. Come on. We're saying, come on, Jesus, come back and finish the story. We're saying, come on to one another, just like all the ancient witnesses in the story that lean over the balcony of heaven, and they look in our eyes, and they say, come on, Finish the story that we started. We're saying, come on to the world that doesn't know him. Come home. When we say, come on, we are crying with the Spirit, the heart of the Father. Are you guys ready to close the story with the great, thunderous, unified, come on, and let's do it until we're happy. <laughs> Ready?
Jesus. Everything we have is yours. We are what we are by the grace of God. We have what we have by the grace of God. We do what we do by the grace of God. Jesus, you are all in all. May heaven and earth praise your name forever. You are worthy, Lamb of God, to receive the reward of your suffering. You are worthy, Lamb of God, to receive all the nations, a family for your Father. You are worthy, Lamb of God. You are worthy. We look in your eyes. You are worthy, Lamb of God. You are worthy, Lamb of God. You are worthy, Lamb of God. You are so worthy, Lamb of God. (laughs) And everyone said, Amen.